From the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is Update One, the club's official podcast. It features newsworthy stories originating from the NPC facilities, as well as broader topics related to journalism, communications, press freedom, and transparency. I'm Adam Cano, and I'm joined today by Linda Tirado, winner of a National Press Club 2020 John Obishon Press Freedom Award. Linda recently visited the club to accept her award in person, and she joins me here. Welcome, Linda. Hi, good to be here. Thanks. You began covering American civil unrest, starting with the 2014 killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, as well as the 2016 armed occupation of the Mulher National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. What, what drew you to that beat? It was absolutely accidental. Uh, I had just finished my first book in the spring of uh, 2014, and it wasn't due to come out until October. So I was just hanging out in D.C., and some activist friends of mine asked me, could I give them a ride out to St. Louis uh, so that they could uh, join the protests and drop off some supplies? And the next thing you know, a friend of mine had a, a mutual friend who was running a live stream, and uh, his his partner was uh, targeted by police and shot at close range uh, with, in the clavicle with a beanbag. And he had a young child at home, so his wife just basically said, no, this is it, you're coming home now. And they were going to have to take the live stream down if they didn't have a warm body. So I wound up being a warm body, and the next thing you know, I was on location for three weeks and embedded with this group of homeless youths, and I became a journalist that covers civil unrest. Fast forward to May 30th, 2020, you were covering the George Floyd protests on the street of Minneapolis as a freelance journalist and photographer. Before we talk about what happened to you there, can you talk a little bit about what brought you out on that occasion and what kind of coverage you were planning? Sure. Um, It was actually the first time I planned to work primarily as a photographer. Typically, I've worked as as a on-the-ground reactive reporter. I I do a lot of work that's primarily on Twitter of small clips and, uh, you know, hey, this is going on, this is going on. But this time I plan to be primarily a photographer. The reason that I went when I did was you have to remember that this was back at the beginning of of coronavirus. Uh, So we had just gone into lockdown. Um, In in my line of work on my beat, there's a a very, it's a small community and we're from all over, but we tend to see each other and we, uh, you know, share resources, share rides, share hotel rooms, share batteries, you know, all of those things, because most of us are freelance and independent. And so I started calling around in the way that we do of like, who's going, who's going, are you going, are you going? And just nobody could uh, either because they had a a baby or they took care of elderly people or they were immunocompromised or just didn't feel like this story was worth the risk of, you know, catching the plague because this was when we were still microwaving mail and bleaching groceries and things like that. We had no idea, you know, how it was, how it was spread or how lethal it was or you know what the survival rates were but you get feelings once you've done something for long enough you can feel when something is electric and you can feel when something is going to need to be covered and one thing that I do know you know over the course of of, of close to a decade of doing this is that if there is no press oversight 
the civilian population tends to be more mistreated. And we had seen enough by Wednesday that I hopped in my car and got there on Thursday. You were taking photos when a police officer aimed and fired his foam bullet gun directly at you. Where were you in relation to the police vis-a-vis the protesters? And do you think the police officer knew that you were part of the press and rather than a protester? I think that it would be very difficult to look at somebody who was taking photos with a full frame camera and a full flash, very obviously taking news photos and think, oh yeah, that's probably a protest leader because most protesters, they might use a cell phone and some of them will have small cameras or you know small live streaming rigs, but I've never seen anybody out there with a Canon Mark IV and a full flash that's you know out working as a protester. I think I, I had a press badge on. I, I've been doing this for a very long time and you can tell who is moving in a professional way most of the time. There's just something about the way photographers work, you know, kind of hunched, kind of walking back, kind of, you know, taking rapid shots, things like that, that you wouldn't expect to see from a protester. And anybody who's been working in law enforcement or who's been covering protests for long enough it's pretty easy to be like, oh, that's a photographer. But, you know, again, the police had the day before I got shot, arrested a CNN crew live on air, um, including, you know, the the anchor that was doing a stand up and the guy with the huge shoulder mount camera. So I think that it, it's in, indisputable that the police, I don't think much cared if we were pressed. Um, and, and in fact may have targeted folks for being pressed. As to my disposition, When I first started, I was maybe 15 feet away from the police, facing the police. Protesters were behind me on the next block. So you know how, I don't know how familiar you are with protest dynamics, but typically what'll happen is you'll have a group of protesters and then you'll have a police line and the police line will move forward. The protesters will drop back and they tend to stay about half a block away from each other, half a block or a block in an urban scenario. They were about a block apart. I was in between them, facing the police, closer to the police, obviously taking photos of the police. I was backing away, uh, which you can tell by just the, the series of photos that I took in the foreground lengthening, things like that. And you can obviously get that with the Zoom, but you start taking photos, you back off. And when you hear that you're closer to protesters, you turn around and start taking photos, walking forward towards protesters. Or you do that in the opposite if you're starting at protesters. You back away and then about halfway through, you swap and start taking photos of whatever you're walking towards. So that was about the scenario. The non-lethal round struck you in the face, causing permanent blindness in one eye. What do you remember about that moment? I remember a dull thud and I remember thinking that's not good. And I remember realizing that my goggles had come off because the tear gas hit my right eye. And I remember realizing that it was a bad sign that the tear gas didn't hit my left eye. I don't know if you've ever been in a bar fight or been hit in the face where you get like that big prize fighters black eye and it immediately swells and you know you've got a black eye like that was the feeling I had no idea how bad it was I remember protesters came and put me the medics taped me up a little bit and they put me in a van and took me to the hospital and I remember I was making all of these jokes about how I was going to have like this badass bruise and everybody else was kind of like sure 
yeah, that's what it, you know, it obviously looked a lot worse than it felt. So you received some treatment there, sort of triage, and then were taken to the hospital or what? Yeah, um, I had my eyes, well, one of them was swollen, the other one was squeezed shut, because obviously, um, you know, it's weird, because a lot of people thought I wasn't wearing goggles, or that was the assumption. And I don't know how you think a photographer goes out in tear gas and manages to take anything worthwhile without having goggles on. But I couldn't, um, I couldn't open my eyes and somebody came and got me. And I remember they took my arm and said, okay, we're going to take you to the medics. And I don't know how long we walked or ran. Um, eventually they just put me down on a curb. They put uh, water in my right eye and bandage on my left. And then they just put me in a van. And I remember the van ride. And then I got to the hospital and I realized that I had a, a tracking mark on my backpack, one of the green fluorescents. Um, and then I posted a selfie to Twitter because I think I was just in shock at that point. I wasn't thinking terribly clearly, but I remember thinking everybody is going to be really worried if they don't hear from me. And, and Twitter is my mass communication. You know, my husband reads my Twitter, all of my colleagues read my Twitter when I'm working. And so I just posted the selfie to Twitter and I said, right, it's, it's fine guys. I'm going into surgery. They're going to, you know, see if they can save my eye, which in retrospect was not the least alarming way I could have put that but I was just repeating what the doctor said. And then I woke up the next day and, you know, the, the story had exploded while I was in surgery. 2020 NPC president, Michael Friedman said that you quote, exemplify the courage and tenacity at the heart of journalism. And that you also manifest the risks that journalists often face doing their jobs. How did you view that job before that fateful day in May, 2020? And how do you look at it now? If you get into a rescue line of work, you either do it because you have no option, as in, you know, the case of farm work or factory work or, or places where you have a lot of industrial accidents, like that's a question of livelihood and survival. If you get into the line of work that I did, if you enlist in the military, if you intentionally do go to places that, that are kinetic, where there are projectiles and angry people and, and violent situations, it's generally because you believe in it. Because it, somebody has to do it. In, in my case, I've always thought I, I, I have the skills. Um, it, it takes a certain personality to be able to work in a crisis environment. Um, it takes a certain personality and a certain amount of recklessness to be able to do that work. And I, I know plenty of really, really amazing journalists that would freeze. Um, the fact that I don't kind of always made me think that I should be doing this because somebody has to, and I'm equipped. You're a freelancer and uh, Angela Greeling Kane, the then president of the NPC's Journalism Institute, the club's nonprofit affiliate said that freelancers like you quote, do their jobs bravely despite the fact that they often lack health insurance, legal help, or other protections that full-time employees are afforded. So how has being a freelancer impacted specifics related to your situation since May of 2020? Well, to begin with, I don't have editorial oversight. So even when deciding how to tell the stories, which shots do I publicize, how do I do my job, 
um, in, in some pretty ethically sticky situations, even having a, an editor to go to, somebody with more experience and say, what, what's, how do I do this um, in, in the most effective, most ethical way that protects people, but also exposes what needs exposure. Um, you know, that's been a big one for me. I was very lucky um, that, that Sidley Austin uh, represented me pro bono, so I had plenty of legal advice, but I do know uh, Will Sands, who did this uh, remarkable photo essay of a lot of us that had lost an eye, uh, he didn't have pro bono legal help. He had to figure out his lawsuit on his own, and, and plenty of people who had that same injury uh, wound up with contingencies and wound up with, you know, class actions and things of that nature. You know, it's down to who your connections are and down to, to what kind of luck you have with your bad luck. My picture was running in China the next day. Like it was worldwide. I got a lot of exposure and a lot of attorneys reached out and, and were willing to help. Um, the same goes with my medical care of, of I was able to, I, I had to pay it all out of pocket, obviously, um, but I was able to reach out to the hospital and say, look, this is the situation. I've got this lawsuit and they deferred billing for me until the settlement came in. But even at that, um, that was easier for me to do because when I walk into an ocularist's office or I walk into an eye doctor's office and I go, oh yeah, I'm the journalist that got shot back in May in 2020, they go, oh, we know who you are. And so there's this um, kind of anti-celebrity that, that comes with some, with some injuries, but not with others and not to other freelancers in other situations. Like I had already lectured at the London School of Economics when I got shot. So I'm in a very different position. I'm in, you know, the top, uh, call me the top 1% of freelancers as far as the, the resources that I have access to. Um, but a lot of my colleagues don't have access to those. So I wind up doing a lot of fundraising for them or a lot of boosting of their GoFundMes and things like that, because, you know, somebody will have gotten hurt and then they can't work for three weeks and they still have to make their rent. So it's, it's those kind of knock on effects of, of not having a newsroom and not having institutional protection. Speaking of the lawsuit and the recent settlement, after that, the National Press Club came out with a statement in June that said that the issue of you potentially being targeted was not addressed in court because of the settlement. What's your take? Um, you know, as to that, I'm going to have to let the settlement speak for itself. What I actually think is that there was no way that the city was ever going to admit guilt. I don't think we were ever going to hear that officer be like, oh, yeah, I shot that bitch, you know. And it, maybe if we had body cam footage, maybe we would have heard that. I don't know. But what I do know is that during the process of a lawsuit, any notes you take are potentially discoverable. And to tell a writer that you're going to put them through the most traumatic experience of their life and they can't write about it to process it. I couldn't write. I couldn't publish. I couldn't talk about it in public. I couldn't. I was I was essentially muzzled um for for two years after this incident and at a certain point we got enough assurances in the settlement of, of how they might be changing their practices um we did set a few precedents in the case already 
And once we got those things, then it was just a question of money and a question of what would come out in the court record, most of which would have been redacted or most of it, which would have been kept confidential anyway. So to me at that point, you know, I I would rather get back to work. (laughs) I want to talk about that and the, and the, uh, the, 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 what comes out of the settlement, but was there catharsis when the settlement happened or was it just another chapter in the saga no it's one of those ends with a whimper kind of things like nice to it's it's i was able to pay off my house which is great in a coming recession um you know i was able to pay off my medical bills there's a little bit of money in the bank that's great um but for for me it really was about getting back to work and being able to speak to other people um to start doing research into police brutality and speaking about that again because that had been my beat for years and so then i'm stuck for two years you know i'm in a recovery for the first maybe probably nine months i was in physical recovery and wouldn't have been able to work anyway and then the next year was spent largely processing but i i wanted to be working. I wanted to do my emotional processing through my work um, and and understand what happened to me and understand, you know, how common is it? And maybe things that I hadn't realized because I hadn't been through the legal system, things like that. Um, You know, I don't want to make an eye joke, but it has given me a hell of a new perspective. And I, I think that that's the best thing to come out of it. The press club statement went on to call for greater police training so that journalists engaged in covering protests like you are not intimidated or injured, whether deliberately or or accidentally. What do you see as the path forward so that these two necessary institutions in our society can play their respective roles without fear? Honestly, I, I think a lot of it's process. For example, I called up to Minneapolis before I went up there and I said, how do I get press credentials? And they didn't have them. So I had to wear just something that I have, like freelancers, we don't get credentials like that. We have to just kind of make up our own. And then it's down to an individual officer if they ask to examine them, whether or not they you know, give us credit for having them or not. The reason freelancers mostly wear credentials is so that we'll be identified as members of the press from a distance. But our credentials aren't you know, backed by anybody for the most part. They're just like, I don't know, today I've made up my own media company, why not? And I think that you know, things like standardizing credentialing so that the police don't have to make a decision. Because the thing we have to remember is that the First Amendment does not make any particular distinction between members of the public and members of the press, but the press are mentioned specifically, right? So there's this room of you shouldn't be doing this to anybody. This is unconstitutional for you to do to anybody. But very specifically, we wanna protect the press and in their role in, in oversight. And so things like having, having uniform policies of like every city should have to have a credentialing program and they should train their officers to recognize those credentials. It's like, no, they talked to us already. They're clear. They're allowed to be there. Training officers in, in how to recognize how journalists work and, and how different journalists work. Because I, depending on what role I'm playing, if I'm a photographer, I'm obviously going to be 
you know, kind of out where I can see more things. But if I'm a writer I'm, or I'm working audio, I might be right in the middle of that crowd trying to get a solid audio or doing a lot of vox pops, things like that. So, you know, different journalists with different capacities work differently, but here's what you can expect to see as much as they do community outreach meetings, right, where they go out and they're like, you can ask us anything, we're not your enemy, like, do that with journalists of like, okay, guys, here's the deal, I'm just doing my job, and I know you're just doing your job, but like, my job and your job have us kind of adversarial, which does not make me your enemy. I'm out here to record a news event. I'm out here to record history, And that is my job. And your job is to keep the public safe. So when you are shooting at the public, I am going to record that because that is my job. In Ferguson, we got to know a lot of the cops, the National Guard guys, because we just were there day in and day out. And they were working overtime. We were working overtime. And there was only one place to go pee or get coffee. So we would run into each other all the time. And there's this one guy um, who actually turned out to be pretty cool. And like every day we would pass each other at one point and he'd yell, hey, Toronto, you got an overtime today? I'm like, no, man, are you? And he's like, yeah, better to be a cop, huh? You know, and it was that kind of like, you know, poking fun, but very clearly, you know, wasn't meant to be intimidating. He was taking the intimidation out of it by with that kind of you know, rough humor that you get with soldiers and cops and firefighters and journalists, really, like a little bit of, uh, and I I think that things like that of of people not thinking that the press is the enemy, because the other thing that happened is Donald Trump. And after years and years and years and years of being told the press is the enemy of the government, the press is the enemy of the police or or the administration or whatever, um, a lot of people start to believe that. I thought Ferguson was going to be the worst I ever saw as far as police behavior. I could not believe what I saw in Minneapolis. Certainly they're different cities, but the other thing that happened was in between those two times, we had a president that told people that I was the enemy. They told police that I was the enemy for years. Journalists often shun the limelight, and yet such notoriety has been thrust upon you. You talk about being known not just by lawyers who wanted to take your case, but you said eye doctors and, and other people like that. So now that this case is over, what what's next for you? And can you go back to being that that role of silent observer? I think it's always been difficult for me because I actually started out with a viral essay and then became a memoirist. And then I became a journalist. And so for me, it's always been like, well, which hat am I wearing today? And I think I'm a lot more comfortable with that than a lot of uh, straight news reporters are. Because I think we we think about journalism often as just straight news reporting, but it can be opinion and can be, you know, first person. It can be those things as long as you're honest with your audience about, you know, what you're doing and how you're doing it. I think that um, there's a lot of value in that because the best of journalism is explaining to people how other people have to live or how other people get to live or, you know, how other people experience the world. And I think there's room for sports and for economic policy and for all of these things that go into a robust media. But, you know, I've got a 
eye patch and blue hair like how am I gonna hide ever like even if I just dyed my hair a normal color um you know a 40 year old woman in a walker with an eye patch tends to attract some attention a 40 year old woman in a walker with an eye patch and a camera is just like blows people's minds so I don't think I'm ever going to be unnoticed again as I think the bigger issue for me is because I used to be able to to go places and maybe a few people would recognize me maybe a few people would know me from you know other work that I've done, but I didn't stand out. I was able to, to be in the back of a crowd and just kind of observe. And I think that that, that is gone. And also I'm not gonna be able to work this beat anymore. I'd be a danger to myself and others running around in the dark with balance issues. <laughs> you know, not able to see the curb in front of me, you know, so for me, figuring out what comes next is going to be the fun part, but whatever it is, it's going to be interesting. And for those who come after you, those joining the profession or thinking of it, whether they're here or in the U.S. or abroad, what would you tell them? If you're not a little bit reckless and a little bit stupidly brave, find an office job. But if you are determined to physically uncover injustice that's happening in real time, then be careful about it. Be safe, have a partner, start with daytime things, get to know uh, how things go before you find yourself you know, in tear gas at night in a kinetic situation, because there isn't a training path for the beat that I worked but there are ways to get into it without jumping all the way in because what you never, ever, ever wanna do is be a risk to your colleagues or to the civilians around you. And it doesn't matter how comfortable you are. If you don't know what you're doing, you will be a danger to others. When I first started in Ferguson, I did jump in with both feet and it was accidental, but Seth Richardson, who I believe is now with the Cleveland Plain Dealer, does politics, he and I have photos of each other having just been tear gassed and I got separated from my people and I wound up having to, he, he very kindly let me uh, sleep in the spare bed in his hotel room and use the shower. And that would have been a very bad situation if Seth hadn't been there. So, you know, things like that will happen, but, but knowing how you're going to move and knowing how to move in those environments is, is really going to be key before you go out and start doing this work. Linda, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Linda Tirado is a freelance journalist, photographer, and winner of an Obishan Press Freedom Award. You can follow her coverage on Twitter at Killer Martinis and Substack under the same handle. I'm Adam Cano. Thanks again for listening. You have been listening to Update One, the official podcast of the National Press Club the world's leading professional organization for journalists and a vigorous advocate of press freedom worldwide. If you have any questions or comments about Update One, send an email to updateonepodcast at gmail.com.